Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Voice of Reason podcast. It is July 5th, 2023. We hope that you have gotten your fill of fireworks, fumes, and not... Hopefully that you have all ten fingers still left on your hand. If not, we apologize, but those things happen. As always, you weren't hung over today. Yeah, you're not right. Sorry. Yeah, and uh, as always, joined by uh, my co-host Travis Kirkendall. My name is Andy Van Bever, and you see the familiar face that we love to have on Pike County Prosecuting Attorney Alex Ellison. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, Sean is on baby watch and baby watch and overwork watch. But uh, we 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 miss our buddy and we gave him the the clean bill to skip as much as he needed to. And we we miss him. But uh, we know that he's here with us in spirit. So gentlemen, how was uh, how was the fourth of July for you guys? Oh, pretty good. Can't complain. It was pretty, pretty chill. What'd you guys, did they do a, I'm assuming they did a show up in like Bowling Green in Louisiana or? Yes. They, they used to do the one in Louisiana. They did one in Louisiana. We had to wait for 30 extra minutes though. It was supposed to start. At nine. Really? Yeah. It was supposed to start at nine o'clock and we're sitting around and sitting around and sitting around and I'm looking on all the Facebook pages to see why aren't we having fireworks. And so I ended up calling, um, uh, a former Clopton grad, Cassie McGuire, who uh, works at, uh, she's a dispatcher for Pike County uh, I don't, the, at 911. And I said, do you know what's going on? And she said, yeah, <laughs> the Missouri Water Patrol is dealing with some boaters who refuse to move back far enough away from the barge <laughs> so that they can shoot off the fireworks safely. <laughs> so nice. I could just see some guy in the, who's been in his boat all... I'm I'm not moving yeah. for no one. Case so, of beer already in. Yeah, a case of beer, you know. Anyway, so that's good. They did a show then. Alex, yeah, how is they didn't do it anymore? How's life as the Pike County prosecuting attorney staying busy? I'm assuming. Oh yeah, it's um always always busy in the summertime and. Um, if you've ever read or listened to Freakonomics before, um, they did a they did a story one time that um, showed ice cream sales. Um, when ice cream sales went up, murder rates went up, <laughs> and and it's a classic example of correlation, not causation. And it's actually because the temperature is going up, and for whatever reason, humans behave badly when when it gets hot outside. And so it was. It was, I was off work yesterday, of course, yesterday for the fourth, and it was maybe the busiest day I've had all year. I mean, work-wise, I had a ton of, <laughs> ton of uh, blood draw search warrants for DWIs. We had uh, domestic assaults, people <laughs> losing it. You know, it was it was a crazy couple days. Fantastic. Well, we've already know that we have one of our TikTok clips for this week right there. <laughs> yeah, so, that's, that's definitely a clip. Uh, yeah, so... It that uh, that, <laughs> God correlation between uh, yep there you go, so anyway we uh, decided uh, the the uh, topic for this evening if you guys saw the or anybody read our our title for tonight is called injustice for all question mark, and we have seen a historic week last week was a historic week for the Supreme Court um, in the decisions that they made um as everybody knows or maybe doesn't know this is a very i don't want to say ultra conservative i would it's a a conservative court you have six conservative judges and i believe were four of them four of them were appointed by trump correct three i believe oh yeah john roberts was uh appointed by bush right yes yes yeah so you have three Trump judges, you have one Bush judge, you have Clarence Thomas, and um, Samuel Alito. Yeah, Samuel Alito. And so, and then uh, this has been, this has been the week for, for cases. 
And tonight, what we're going to look at and why we have our, our legal expert, Alex Ellison, on for um, is to talk about this case. Uh, the first case that we're going to look at, we may get, if we can get to two of them tonight, it would be good. Um, but the one that really struck a lot of chords with people was the Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard and the Students for Fair Admission versus uh, UNC or University of North Carolina. Um, what this case did, this was a case that was bought by an brought by an individual, I believe his last, I, I forgot what his first name, his last name was Bloom, I believe, but he, this guy has been, he's not a lawyer, but he has been an advocate to bring down affirmative action for years. And for those who don't know or exactly how affirmative action works, affirmative action was a move that was made <coughs> by uh, Lyndon Johnson. He actually, it was an executive order that was pushed by Lyndon Johnson back in 1968. And the purpose of this, of this was, this was kind of done with the civil rights act and the voting protection and the voting rights act and all this stuff was to basically set up a quota system so that a, a, um, what's the word I want to use? A reason, a reasonable amount a person couldn't be denied admission into a college or into a job or into anything because of the race and schools jobs had to hire a certain amount of race that was in that was in um, the same percentage as to what that race that lived in the area so if you say you had you know you had a town of of 10,000 and, you know, 30 per 3,000 were black. Okay. Then you have to hire, you know, out of, out of your staff, 30% have to be black. Or if your college has to have 30% after you have to admit 30% African-Americans in, into your college admissions. Now at the time, this was something that was needed because discrimination was something that obviously ran rampant through the 60s, 70s, and even into the 80s, even into into my time. But, you know, let's just, let's get this off the top. Just work, look at this right off the top. Um, what, are, what are your guys' thoughts about this decision ending in affirmative action? And we'll just go, we'll work from there. Uh, where to start? <laughs> So you made a good point in like why affirmative action I guess happened. I mean, it was there for a reason, and at the time, I I think it made sense. Um, but if you you know we're in a different time now where race isn't quite as I mean it's different now. The outlook of race, everyone's there's more logic behind it now. People look at each other as humans and not like, hey, you're a black person, I'm a white person, right? <clears throat> so. The whole idea of it, I think, is kind of it's an outdated just based off of where we are as a society, I think. Um, and you got to I guess we're at a point now where you do got to take a step back and say, is it necessarily fair? And at 1960, I would say yes. But if you're looking where we are now, I don't I don't know. I don't know if that's I don't think there should be a basis of. That shouldn't be a consideration of somebody going to a school, I think, or a school, or it could be work, or whatever the case may be. I don't think that should be a consideration. I think it should be based off of credentials. You know, what do you bring to the table? What do you bring to, you know, whatever it is. But I don't think this has anything to do with that. Alex, what do you think? My two cents. Yeah, um, I mean, I'm. Yeah, I, I agree a lot with Travis. Um, I'm I'm kind of of two minds. I mean, one, the, you know, I deeply, deep down, I am very much libertarian. Um, and I, I do think that, you know, the government shouldn't be stepping in and telling, um, well, I don't, I don't think that race should be used to decide admissions in universities period. You know, I don't think we should be discriminating against people based on their race. Um, but at the same time, I, I don't think we can ignore that, you know, our, our country does have a deeply racist past. Um, 
But again, like Travis said, are we in the same place we were in the 1960s? No, I don't think so. Um, and really, I, you know, I, when I thought about this case, um, you know, one, like I said, I find it pretty offensive that somebody's being chosen over somebody else just because of their race. Um, and really, I think about, you know, in this case, it was it was brought by Asian students that were denied admission. Yeah, it's Harvard. Harvard. Um, because the school basically decided we have too many Asians. Um, you know, we need more more of other minorities. And at the same time, they, they did so at um, they, they did so in a way in which they protected the legacy um, students, the, the kids whose parents had gone to Harvard, the kids whose parents had donated money to Harvard. Um, those kids weren't affected. Instead, they took away scholarships from Asian students and gave them to other minority students. And I just think about those kids. I mean, those kids really suffered and only because they're of a certain ethnicity. And that, that really doesn't seem fair. I mean, I, I tend to think the court got this one right. Um, you know, if you want to be a private university and not this, this case, this ruling only applies to universities and colleges that take federal money, which basically all schools do in some way. But if, but if you want to strike out on your own and not rely on the federal government, Hey, I mean, and, and you want to, you want to handpick your students based on race, then, you know, I think more power to you. Um, but if the federal government's giving you money, then, you know, I, I think you got to be fair. And I don't think you can decide things based on race. It, it, it well, they have, fair. they have private institutions that are dedicated towards certain ethnicity groups already. Right. I mean, yes. yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 So, and, and this really wouldn't apply to them. And when you look right. and there were there were states and here here's the thing that. So. There were states that had already banned affirmative action as early as 1996. Surprisingly enough, California was the first state to ban affirmative action back in 1996. Oh, Texas also in 1996, but then they reversed it in 2003. Washington banned it in 1998. They reversed it in 2022. And then you have Florida, Michigan, Nebraska, Arizona, New Hampshire, Oklahoma, and Idaho who have all banned affirmative action. And they're still banned. And, you know, what it's designed to do, you know, like I said, design it's designed to eliminate and remedy unlawful discrimination. And like you said, Travis, this, this is a different time. When I look at, and the, so in my research, the, the, the term, the legalese term that, that has been used um, is called the, there are you, you are, you are, is it URGs? Yeah, URGs, underrepresented groups. Okay. And so, what has, and this is, so a lot, I, I got my hands on a lot of surveys since this, and this decision came out the last week of June. So, last week. And so, according to the Pew Research Center, who is one of the, top researchers in the country, Pew and Gallup, Pew said, according to a survey uh, of 50% of U.S. adults disapproved of selective colleges considering race and ethnicity in admission decisions while just one-third of U.S. adults approved. In that same survey, nearly half of Americans, 49%, said that considering race and ethnicity, ethnicity makes college admissions less fair. In contrast, 20% said that it makes the process more fair. 30 said 30% said and this surprised me. 30% said it does not affect the fairness of the process of at all. And when you start looking at you know where by race by race. So African Americans 47% said they approve of affirmative action. About one quarter of black Americans said they're not sure. 29% disapprove. 37%. Now, you said, Alex, that this was brought by Asian students. 37% of Asian Americans approve of the affirmative action and selective college admission. Now, this is in the 2023 survey. A slight majority of Asian adults, 52%, said that they disapprove. Okay? And when you look at the breakdown of 
who who favors who favors uh, affirmative action more, it comes down to African Americans. African Americans, you know, forty seven percent of African Americans approve of affirmative action. So, my question that I want to, and I'll throw this at you guys. I threw this, and of course, my wife is awesome about because I bounce stuff off her all the time about for questions for the podcast with that in mind. Okay. I want to, I want to, I want to give you a quote that you guys, I know you've heard, but it was a, a quote by Martin Luther King, you know, that he, he believed that a person should be, should be judged by the content of their character and not the color of their skin. Okay. Now in my mind, and I may be totally, totally off base on this, but in my mind, if affirmative action was to be carried through the way that it was designed to be carried through, don't you guys think that that would run parallel to what Dr. King envisioned? Maybe, but I think the I think it's still a numbers game, though. There still has to be if you're going to do affirmative action, I feel like there still has to be something they can set a basis off of, of like, okay, how are we going to meet this agenda, this quota, or so to speak? I don't know how I, I I'm for the idea of like, okay, we can definitely make stuff more accessible, give everybody the opportunity. But we're, I think we're, we made a good point when we were talking about this lawsuit is like, at what point does someone else lose their opportunity because they gave it to somebody else? Like how, maybe you can, is there a way to not cut somebody else out? Cause it, or is it still just a numbers? You know what I'm trying to say? Mm-hmm. Like with that? Well, I, but I don't it, know the basis. And Alex, I don't get your, I want to get your feet on this. What John Roberts and John Roberts, when he wrote the majority opinion for this, he cited the 14th amendment that the, he thought that the four in his mind that the Fourteenth Amendment was actually being you was working in reverse in this case. Do you agree with that, or is that is that something that they're really trying to pull out of the air? Or how do you how do you see that? No, I mean he. Yeah, I, I think he's. I, th- I think he's right. Um, I've heard some people say that you know John Roberts was perverting the Fourteenth Amendment That's, by yeah. using it in this way, but um, I mean, yeah, the Fourteenth Amendment obviously was drafted post-Civil War with the intent of righting many of the injustices that happened prior to the Civil War. Um, But I think along with the idea that of what Dr. King said, I think affirmative action policies conflict directly with both the 14th Amendment and Dr. King's philosophy. Um, Now there's the separate separate issue of okay, are we giving everybody enough opportunities? Have we done enough to ensure that maybe generations of racism have have tamped down certain communities and do they have the same access to resources that other communities have? I think that's a separate issue. But if you're talking just philosophy and logic and you're talking, are we deciding things based on someone's skin? Yeah, that's what affirmative action was. I mean, that's at its core, that's what it was, and both of those fly in the that flies in the face of both the Fourteenth Amendment and Dr. King's philosophy. My 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 feeling is this, and and I, and I want your guys' input on this because I'm and I'm bestcolleges.com had a this I was telling Travis this before the podcast tonight. I was I spent forty five minutes just they pages upon page these guys. I don't know who their people are, but in the last two weeks, they they this research that they gathered was just so mind-boggling that, and and they they played both sides of the field on this. That the process in and of itself can is biased against African Americans because of certain f- features. They say okay, so at its root, they look at testing. Okay, so we're going to look at testing the ACT and the SAT, which are which are pretty much you know if you're going to a coastal school, the SAT is usually the standard bearer. If you go pretty much Midwestern Plain States, South, you know ACT is is what you go for. And 
one of the things that this survey pointed out was, you know, some people in their research said, okay, the system is biased because it favors wealthier white families because kids can't, you know, kids from low-income African-American neighborhoods cannot afford tutors and the tests, testing software and it, you know, and and these in these in these inner city schools are not preparing students for the test as they should because they have all these other issues that they have to deal with and i believe you know and this is going to make me sound like a bigot but i'm not trying to sound like a bigot in the fact that there has to be to me there has to be a point to where we draw a line and say okay you have we can't use the race car because at some point if you're driven and this this is the bigot part of me sounding in this but there's this whole thing i've i'm a i'm a firm believer in pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps okay and i think that if you're driven enough in today's world you can go to college pretty much anywhere you want to go to but i can also see the other side you know here i am a white midwestern guy trying to make assumptions about what African-Americans, what they have to go through. And so that side of me says, okay, I can kind of see where they're coming from. But we've had, you know, many African-Americans who have graduated from our small school out here in the middle of nowhere and who have went on and have become very successful. So at, do is, am I wrong in making this presumption in that people are playing the race card or is that just the white, is that just the white, the whiteness in me coming out? It's hard to say. I mean, because like you said, we we've lived a very different experience. Like we have, I have no idea what it's like to go to school in uh, North St. Louis or South Chicago and grow up in that environment. I have, I have no idea what the school system looks like there. Um, I have no idea what that education level of education looks like. How prepared they are, we don't know. We can look at statistics and make assumptions, but we don't know what that experience is like for that student being there. So it's hard. That's my biggest conflict with stuff like this is. It's like, it's so easy to, I think a lot of people get caught up this. It's so easy to not get it because we don't experience it. But at the same time, you could, you look at it sometimes and it's like, like you said, you know, pulling yourself out by your bootstraps. You look at the situation, you're like, really though? Because there's so many, like, you're talking about school, for instance, there's so many like scholarship opportunities out there. Like, I don't like we, Missouri, we had the A plus program, which get, Pretty much gave you two free years of uh i don't know if it was free but it was a pretty good oh it was uh, free. deal it's they had free. it was free any, okay for any for any state yeah, for a community college any, first yeah. two years right or any state sponsored um, school yeah and I, I know a lot of states have programs similar to that or they have mm-hmm. programs to help people regardless of race or whatever your credentials to you know be able to go to school and get a better education and um yeah, the, for me, I see stuff like that, and I look at other things like, you know, I'm, I'm in the trades. We have a shortage in the trades. Anybody can sign up for the trades if you're physically willing to do it. You know, it doesn't. There's great opportunities for people to change their lives in it, but you don't see people signing up for it. Like, so there's so many, and I'm not saying that that well, they have to rely on that. I mean, there's other things you can do. Uh, especially like we talk about college. I just, like you said, I'm kind of just echoing everything you said, mm-hmm. but there's so, I feel like there's so many opportunities out there in our country specifically that like you're kind of setting yourself up for failure if you're just making excuses with it. And, and, and I'll, and I'll play the flip side of this coin too. Okay. So in an education report by the, by the Hetchinger group in 2020 school year, 2022 to 2023, identified where some of these racial gaps occur at. Just three examples they gave here in this report. Eight of the ten, and this was in uh, some of these universities, the big big universities of these states, they call them the flagship universities. So eight of the ten flagship universities that they studied with the biggest gaps for for black students did not factor race into their admission process. In 20, and so one of these flagship, one of these states that they looked at, in 2021, 48% of Mississippi's high school graduates were black. 48%. But only 8% of the first-year students at Ole Miss, which is the state's flagship university, was were black. 
The gap between George, the gap between Georgia's black high school graduates and those who go on to the University of Georgia has widened by 31 percentage points, with just two percent of incoming first-year students being black men in 2021. Okay, so. So, so that brings up again my point, though. Where, what is the, what is the reasoning? So we, because you have, so you, when you look at these southern states, you have Mississippi, you have Georgia, you have Alabama, and I imagine this is probably the same case in Florida as well, that a large percentage of these, that these universities do not have black students. All right. So Alex, then from the legal point of view, and I, I pretty much already know what your answer is going to be, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Are these kids' 14th Amendment rights being violated? No, I don't think so. And um, I think, you know, when you're talking about, uh, you know, as soon as you said Mississippi um, and talking about the, uh, the student body of Ole Miss, I thought, you know, on the flip side, what about the student body of Jackson State, which is also in Mississippi, a historically black college? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm probably eight percent of the student body there is is white. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I'm not, and I think Mississippi, those states, I mean, those states suffered through generation after generation of segregation, and we re- there really are almost two different cultures in those states, white and black. Um, but no, I don't think you're, I don't think the 14th amendment rights are being trampled here. Um, because I mean, if, if, if the argument is that 14th amendment rights are being trampled on because minority students aren't being given an basically an extra leg up when it comes to getting into these universities, you know, that's, that's not what the 14th Amendment was intended for. The 14th Amendment was, like I was saying earlier, was actually kind of intended to do the opposite and forbidding the government from discriminating one way or the other based on race. Um, and, you know, so no, I don't think they're 14th Amendment. But really, you know, like you all were talking earlier, I just don't think there's an easy answer. No. Um, because no. I you, 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 can't, you, you can't deny that the lingering effects of the first 200 years basically of our country's racist past still exist. I mean, um, minorities are still suffering from it. And, you know, yeah, if you, if you grow up in, in North St. Louis and go to a a terrible unaccredited high school, um, you know, are you, are you getting the same education that a white kid who grew up in Chesterfield that goes to a, a private expensive school is getting absolutely not. Um, you know, and kind of on the flip side, I've heard the argument, um, or the analogy of, if you compare it to like a, a baseball prospect where you've got one prospect and, and in this case, we could compare it to like kids that get a score on the ACT, say you've got one kid from the suburbs that gets a 34 and a kid from the inner city that also gets a 34. If you're a college and you're looking to see which one's going to be the more successful adult, do you want the kid that grew up in the suburbs and went to a, an expensive private school and that landed them a 34? Or do you want the kid that grew up in an inner city facing all the challenges that they had to face and still got a 34? I'd you know, go- at that point, if you're trying to decide between, a, between the inner city student and the suburb student, you know, there's a good argument to go with the inner city student that they overcame that much. Then why don't, why don't, instead of, and maybe this is, I guess maybe this isn't allowed either. But instead of going based off of race, why don't they go this based off of your family income, like the household income? Why don't they just strictly go off of that? Wouldn't that be a good indicator of what well, your upbringing and, and was compared to? Oh, it absolutely, absolutely could be. I mean, if if you were getting an, an accurate portrayal of that, you know, if right, you know, I'm sure someone would eventually figure out how to game the system and yeah, taxation you know, and what you know, <laughs> but, your income um, and yeah, yeah. I but also, you know, doing that or doing it by zip code, um, you know, you you run the risk then of kind of like we had talked about in the gerrymandering episode, you run the risk of kind of de facto racism. Mm-hmm. It, it's yeah. I could see that because, yeah. And so, and back to what you said earlier, though, Alex, there isn't a, 
there isn't a surefire solution. I will t say uh, the alternative. So we mentioned California. California was the first one to uh, ban affirmative action. So as of this last school year, California guarantees admission. The state of California guarantees admission to at least one of their UC school, whether it's UCLA, UC Santa Barbara, UC, you know, uh, um, um, any of their colleges, basically they guarantee admission to at least one of these schools to all in-state high school graduates in the top 9% of their class. Okay, so regardless of where you go to school, if you go to inner city Los Angeles High, whatever, you know, whatever's in downtown or in East L.A. East L.A. is the one of the worst. Okay, you graduate in the top 9%, you get you will get admitted to at least one UC school, okay? And to me, the UC, you know, Cal State, you know, UCLA, UC Santa Barbara, uh, University of Southern California, all these are, they're, and these are, in my view, prestigious schools, okay? And so, you know, there, it did see this, according to this report, it said that while the UC system initially experienced a dip in, in uh, URG enrollment after the affirmative action ban, numbers have risen significantly in recent years. There is still a considerable gap, however, between the state's high school underrepresented graduates, 59% in 2016, and you, in, enrollees. So 59 of the grad, 59% out of the 59% of the graduates who were listed as URG, underrepresented graduates out of those 37 percent went to enlisted or came to a, a uc school so i look at that you know to me if i if i'm going to propose a solution that's what i'm going to look at i want to look at you know i and i'll and i'll come right out and say it i am anti-standardized test i think standardized test i have Taught, I'm getting ready to start my 26th year of teaching. I have never been a fan of standardized testing. ACT, SAT, I, I'll be frank. I scored, a, I scored a 21 on my, on my ACT. And I think I scored like a 950 on my SAT. Okay? So I was not setting the world on fire with my test scores. However, I graduated... I, number eight in my class of 40. Okay, now, granted, I went to high school at Canton High School, and that's like saying, you know, graduating at the top of the heap at Canton High School is, you know, whatever. But I look at this, and I see this as, a, as you know, as a fair alternative, because what you're doing is you're you're putting it back, and this, this, to what you said earlier, Alex, this is almost a libertarian idea of putting it back to the state saying, Okay, you want to end racial discrimination, then put it back. To me, this is putting it back on the students and saying, all right, perform. We're not going to look at SAT. We're not going to look at ACT. But we will, you know, you know here in Missouri, you know, Mizzou, Missouri State, Truman University. Uh, I'm forgetting uh, Southwest Missouri State. Uh, you know, we're going to, SEMO, we're going to guarantee you that if you graduate in the top 10% of your class, okay, you're in. You, we're guaranteeing you admission to one of these schools. I mean, is that a fair solution? What do you guys think of that? I mean, I would say it, it, it seems fair, but... Referring to the numbers, that um, I mean, who are you going to exclude by guaranteeing someone? Um, you know, and I, I, I worry, or or are you going to dilute evaluation to, to everybody else that's going there? I don't, I don't know. Well, I, 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 I can, I can see that if I'm, but I. I think if I look at it this way, if, I, if I'm going to make, and maybe this, this, is, this is going, maybe put more pressure on schools to say, okay, you, you need to, if we're going to do this thing, then you guys need to give us quality students. At the same time, I, and I see what you're saying, because 
let's say that somebody who goes to a like you like you said somebody who goes to school in you know uh, you, uh, what is it University High there in St. Louis in downtown University High versus somebody who goes out to uh, Frontier Winsfield Frontier okay who's going to have more opportunities so I may graduate in the top. I can see the, and some people may say that, and this may be the problem too. They say, okay, the top 10, the top 10% at university high in, in downtown St. Louis, you have kids who are in the top 20% who are performing better than the top 10% at university high. I mean, I can see that as an issue too, but at some point, I don't know. I, I I may be thinking just outside of my head right now, but I just, there has to be, <clears throat> it goes back to what I said before about what Dr. King said, the content of a person's character. If you are going to work hard and if you are going to apply yourself, then you should be rewarded regardless of what color of your skin is. You know, when I read and I first thought, man, they're going to go with this whole, when I heard this case, I thought, man, they're going to go with this whole anti- you know, reverse discrimination for whites. And then I saw at Harvard that that's target. They were target. I mean, it was Asian students who brought this. I'm like, not that my kids are going to go to Harvard, but I was like, okay, so am I behind the eight ball here when I, when it comes down to me getting my kids into college later on, am I going to have a challenge getting my kids into college? But, you know, suffice it to say, they're not going to go to Harvard. I mean, and that's the other factor I want to ask you guys. Do you think, where do you see this kind of thing being an issue at? When they say the flagship schools, do you think that this is a thing that, now did you go to, where'd you, did you go to Mizzou, Alex? Is that where you went? Um, I went to, I went to UMSL to the University of Missouri, St. Louis for undergrad. And then I went to Mizzou for law school. So did you, did you feel that there was, based upon your experience at Mizzou, did what level of diversity, and I'm so as well. What kind of what level of diversity did you see, in, in just from your experience, what kind of what kind of diversity did you see at those schools? Hang on, I got to say good night to somebody real, oh, really okay. fast. Okay, we'll, we'll let. Oh, look, <laughs> Dad, go ahead, Dad. That's cute. Oh, there you go. That's coming, Travis. That's coming for you right there, pal. Oh yeah, I know. All right, all right, I'm back. Um, yeah, no. Um, I mean, so I so I went to law school at Mizzou, so I didn't really get to experience the undergrad student body that much. Um, I mean, the, the the law school I thought was was actually pretty proportional. I would guess that roughly twenty five to thirty percent of the student body was black, maybe even another ten percent was some other minority, um, with probably fifty percent or better being being white. But I think that's I would I would assume that's pretty pretty much in line with the population of the state of Missouri, um, and then at at UMSL UMSL was a a little bit of a different scenario um, because UMSL sits in North St. Louis, um, and it's much more of a metropolitan university, um, and so it was th th there were quite a few African American students, um, and I would I would estimate it was it was closer to. 40% of, of the student body was black at, at, at UMSL. Um, I, I would be shocked if any of this colleges in Missouri are dealing with uh, this. Yeah. I have a super majority of, of white students that would, that, that would surprise me. Um, I, I would imagine it lies most that, that kind of problem lies mostly in those, mostly in those States in the deep South where mm -hmm. you do have that, it's, that, history of I mean, and like I said where you got a history of historically black colleges for African Americans to go to in Missouri we do have Lincoln University as a as an HBCU HBCU but it's the mm -hmm. only one in I the forgot state. about that yeah yeah um, I think yeah. that there's a go ahead Trevor. I'd like to share some statistics with you guys really quick and this kind of goes with what Alex was saying so I pulled up the 2020 census and of the you know, our population here in the U.S., the largest population is still the white population. 204.3 million people identifying as white alone in the 2020 census. Wow. And then the second largest, African-American, 46.9 million. 
So right there, and obviously, you know, depending on the, where the schools are and stuff like that, the demographics could be a little a little bit different. But maybe this is too broad of a view, but looking just at the population alone, clearly you're going to have more white students. It's just, right? I mean, overall, with as far as trying to make it schools even and stuff, you're going to have more. It's hard to make it fair when there's just, well, the populations are just different. So when I, that's, right? that's, yeah, exactly. And that's the next point that I was going to go to. How far do we need to go to make a level playing field? Do we go to, and I think Alex said something like this before, or, you know, do we go to make it, should we, how far do we go to make it to where it's not disproportionate? You know, right. Cause I, I mean, say if you wanted it to be 50, 50, again, very broad view. Cause it depends on, you know, the city, you're... the demographic, right. the state, right, right, right. But like, if you're just splitting it right down the middle saying 50, 50, looking at statistics right here and there, I would say more white students would lose the opportunity for scholarship compared to black just because of the numbers just don't line up. Right. Right. So it's, how would you, is it's hard to make, this is a very hard topic because it's like, how do you make it fair? But how do you also acknowledge the fact that there's, there is a little bit of disadvantage there. It's, it's a very tough, it, it comes to me, but it also, but the, the fact of socio, the socioeconomic factors that are out there, the economic factors that right. are out there. And, and again, not to be racist, but you have, a larger percentage of African-American young people who come from single-parent homes, whether it's single mother, single father. You have, you have, you know, you have a, the disproportionate as far as income goes. And people will argue, well, it's because it's racist. And not exactly. I mean, there are some, there are some kids who are just born, and I use this phrase a lot, but born under a bad sign, you know, they were born into bad circumstances, and it's it's either they're they're either going to they're either going to fight their circumstances and and overcome, or they're going to be victims of their own circumstance and they're going to just blend back into the system, and that may say that may sound systemically racist, but you know until we until we get to the point to where we're and I mean, this address this this is looking at a much larger problem because the the society in which we live in, you know, African Americans and whites and the stereotypes and everything that we have inherently puts a barrier in the system. And I and I think you know that's <laughs> that's a problem that we have to deal with. And how do you address that? I mean, going one thing at a time. I mean, it's a much to me affirmative action is not going to be solved just by trying to make a level playing field. And you're you're creating more of a problem than what you're, you know, trying to fix. So, and I may be wrong on, on my perception of that, but that's that's what I think. I mean, I don't know what what am I am I off on that? No, I get what you're saying. I think this the difficult thing, and this is the job for our politicians is you know figure out what the what the solutions are, and. As this is a pretty multi-layered issue. There's a lot of factors that we haven't even discussed. You know, you're talking like home life, you know, well, you brought it up, you know, like growing up in single family homes and stuff like that. You know, it, it, it starts there. It starts at the home. It starts with the culture, the upbringing, um, the environment you're around. I mean, there's so much that outside of just the school self that goes into this issue. And I, I don't know how you address that. I mean, there's, lot of issues in like these inner cities and stuff that goes beyond just the school districts and stuff like that and there's one more aspect of this that i want to get to and this i want to get back to the legal side of this and this is a question that i want to bring up for alex too and this is something that i've taught for years but i've applied in this situation okay when judges make these decisions when the supreme court makes these decisions when your federal courts make these decisions how should judges look at this Okay. Should decisions be based off of what the framers intent were when they wrote the constitution or when the people at the time, when they added those amendments should, you know, should decisions, should they adapt with times as many situations were not the same as what they were in the late 1700s, you know, should cases be designed, decided on a case by case, uh, what it was word adjudication or, 
And this was this was our survey question. And then our friend Martin Hanley, who we can always count on Martin, but Martin actually added a, 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 another option. He said decisions should be, and this is what, a, we only had three people who voted this week, so I can't make it. But Martin said decisions should, should adapt but be based upon the framer's intent to the extent that we know as to what that intent was. So when you look at an affirmative action case and you bring in the intent of the 14th Amendment, Alex, what, what do you tend, I mean, do we look at, in cases like this, do we look at the Constitution as a living, breathing document that has to adapt with the times? Do we go by what the intent of the amendment was? What, what, what do you generally tend to agree with? I mean, I think the schools that they call it judicial restraint versus judicial activism, I believe, is the terms that they use. What, which side do you tend to kind of go with in cases like these? Yeah, um... I mean, I tend to, I tend to go with um, what's what's typically kind of known as originalism, which is what was the original intent of the founding fathers. I tend to think that's, I mean, one it, that does seem to line up more with the conservative um, ideological side of these issues. However, I I tend to think that's probably the better way to decide cases mostly because it's the most predictable and I and I say that it, it's not, it's not really predictable because you can kind of twist that um, view to, to however you want to fit it ideologically um, but yeah I actually agree a lot with what Martin said um, I would I would love for Supreme Court justices to make their decisions based on what they what they believe the intent of the framers was while also, keeping in context where we are in our modern life. I mean, because clearly we're in a different time, a different world, but if, if you're not, if you're not basing your decisions on, on something that's somewhat set in stone, um, then I, I think that's dangerous because that becomes unpredictable. Um, you know, so I really like Martin's analysis a lot. Now I will tell you, um, shocker, Supreme Court justices are just as political as everybody else in Washington. <laughs> they, they, put up, they put up a facade of being impartial and um, not deciding things on a political basis, but they, they very clearly, when it, when it fits a, a justice, when it benefits a justice to be an originalist, they're, they're an originalist. And when it fits them to see the constitution or see yeah see the constitution as a living breathing changing document then they see it that way um so i don't i don't think we have any angels on the supreme court um <laughs> i would love for them to just pick a side um but yeah i i martin said it really well i i think you got to keep in context um what's going on in today's world but at the same time you i think you should try to base your decisions on what was the original intent of the, of the constitution. Well, I, you know, I, I've always, and I've, I've tend to be, to be an originalist because myself, but I'm also going to, I'll, I'll play a little bit of, of devil's advocate in, you know, to quote, you know, John, justice, John Marshall, who was uh, like late 1700s, early 1800s Supreme Court Chief Justice? You know, he was one of the original. You know, his he had some he had some activist moments where he you know he went above and beyond what the framers' intent was. And you had other people who who later on who said, "Look, the intent of the intent we how how knowledgeable are we to know exactly what the intent." of the framers were <laughs> i'm kind of reminded of <laughs> this is way off but a family guy episode where they're like say okay the right to bear arms you know you think they're gonna get this mixed up and then the, the guy goes no look here's here's my arm of a bear you know it's a bear arm the right to bear arms you know <laughs> no they're not gonna get that confused but <laughs> just that plane over my head but the <laughs> i'm sorry but you know, they didn't know about affirmative action. I mean, large percentage of those guys were slave owners. You know, they mm -hmm. didn't even see, you know, 
even though, I mean, Ben Franklin led the first ab- anti, uh, anti-slavery societies on this, on this continent um, way before it was cool. But he was not so much as one, uh, you know, he was not, he didn't believe in equal rights for African Americans, but he believed in, he believed in not having slavery. So to say in a case like this, well, it's kind of hard to discover what original intent was. And when you looked at the 14th Amendment, the intent of the 14th Amendment was to grant equal, you know, equal protection. You know, I mean, it's the due process clause. I mean, that's another one of the due process amendments to say, you know, you're not going to deny anybody their their rights based upon their color. And so, you know, this, I don't know, this, this is, this, like we said all along, there's not really a, a set in stone solution that we can find to this problem. Um, but, uh, no, I, I, when I looked at this issue, this was, this is one that kind of, it's hard for a group of white guys to have this discussion, but at the same time, it's a discussion that needs to be had because, you know, I want to go back to what you said, Travis. I mean, we need to start looking at, you know, and I've used this example before. One of the favorite, one of my favorite speakers who I love listening to, um, you guys, sometimes people ask me, well, what podcast, who do you listen to? I listen to a guy by the name of Dr. Tony Evans, Dr. Tony Evans. He's a, He's a he's actually a pastor at, at uh, he's a he's the chaplain he's actually the chaplain for the Dallas Cowboys and he's also a pastor of one of the largest churches in Dallas Texas, and goodness gracious, and so he he said you know one of the things that he has always said is you know it starts the problem within a society, racism, crime, violence, it all starts in the home, okay. And it starts with the core, like you said, the core unit, you know, the core unit of, okay, what's going on in that family, in that neighborhood, okay? And that, you start with the family, okay? What's in that family? Mom, dad, kids. So you have a solid core unit, okay? Then you move out from that. How does that relate to the neighborhood? Okay, now you have a, you have a, and it doesn't matter if they're Muslim, Jewish, Christian, you know, atheist, whatever, you've got a solid core unit that starts there and then it builds out from that. Okay. If that, if that primary unit within the community is broken, then the, re- I mean, it's a domino effect of the rest. You guys get what I'm saying? It's, it's a domino mm-hmm. effect of how it plays out into the rest of, of society. You know, I say, so, well, are you saying that we can't have good society with single parent? No, I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is I've seen my share of broken kids who have come from broken homes and who have had to fart, fart, who've had to fight extra hard to, you know, overcome their circumstances because that core unit wasn't there. If that core unit's there, then I think it's, you know, and, and it may, and this may be part of the issue where this, you know, why kids aren't getting into the schools that they need to be getting into. I may, I may be totally talking out of my butt here, but I don't, I don't know. No, I, I get what you're saying that, but I think that's a, I don't see that as a race problem. I see that as a cultural problem. Well, it is. A, I think, but, I think they're one and the same. Because, yeah, because I mean, if you want to, we always talk about, like, we talk about African-Americans in the inner cities, but like talk about poor white people in the Appalachia or, or People in Missouri, I mean, Southern Missouri, my God, you want to talk about poverty. Yeah, I, that's where I started, um, my, I started my teaching career down in Southeast Missouri, and that's a, that is a totally, 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 totally different lifestyle down there. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, I guess to, to, to sum this all up, and, and I want your guys' final thoughts on this. You know, as we move forward, and there's another, we'll probably touch on some of these other issues in, in weeks to come. This court, last week, so there were five, I'll just sum it up this way. There were five key decisions that were made by the Supreme Court last week. One one was to end affirmative action. One was to give uh, the rights to the, uh, to uh, certain people of of certain religious beliefs that they, if they, they can deny, was it deny services to people of same-sex marriages or whatever like that. Mm -hmm. Um, There was a, what was the other case? The one that, that basically said, 
said that unions could unions could um Union, the or, companies can sue companies can sue unions if unions choose to protest right and so or they can find them for loss of payments right or and so the the a number of these you know and then the 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 plan to overturn oh we lost alex there the plan to overturn um um well there he comes back the the and then uh the to overturn biden's plan to uh, forgive yeah, student, student loan loans. So you have you have five key decisions here that were made by the court that is, were total game changers. And you know this is going to be interesting playing into the you know we're getting ready. I hate to say it, but we're getting close to getting into the election season. We're getting ready to get into oh, you know, it's already started. Yeah, campaign politics, and we're going to see. We're going to see these decisions really start, and in some of the analysis I read, I read an article by The Hill, um, which I sent out to Travis and Sean this week, and I think I sent it to Alex too. One of the one of the things that they put into this article was the Democrats will not, in and The Hill is not a conservative uh, news source, but they The Hill said. That the Democrats will gain won't gain much if they use the court as a as a uh, you know as an issue for the next election, you know, and they they found that that is that's going to be something that's going to hurt them in the end. But I I don't know this this has definitely been you know for me as a as a government teacher i mean i'm gonna be I, i'm gonna be coming back and none of my kids will know anything about this one go oh, what what do you mean what happened but anyway but um final thoughts what do you guys anything else that stuck, stuck out to you guys about this no i mean i this is for another day but i, I would like to touch on the union one that'd be a good discussion yeah well, i'm thinking um, we'll probably get into these a couple of these other these other ones are I knew the affirmative action one was going to be a, a big bear to tackle. And I do, I'm like you, I want to talk about the student debt one and I want to talk about Unless something like significant comes up in the news, maybe we'll do it for next weekend. We'll yeah, talk about the rest we'll, of the we'll Supreme that. Court but, actions. And hopefully we'll see a young baby Phillips. Yeah. Next week. We'll, we'll see how that works out. I mean, we could all, we could always use more Ellison's in the world. I mean, you know, but I, <laughs> so Alex, we want to, again, we want to thank you for, yeah, you, you know, you're in the what is it on Saturday Night Live? They have the Five Timers Club. I think you're you're part of the yeah. fight. We we have like the elite jacket that we'll send out to you know that has a little pageant, you know, the Five Timer Club on it. You know, five time yeah. guest host of of the Voice of Reason. But yeah. uh I'll, I'll be waiting on that jacket. <laughs> I'll make sure it's custom fit for you. All, all guests appearing on the Voice of Reason get a uh, get the ba- after baseball. Ten visits, after ten visits, you get a custom jacket. Yes, we. I am. I am not. People have asked me, "Hey, what happened to your merch store?" I am currently. That's a one of my summer projects that I've been working on, trying to get the merch store a little bit more user friendly. Yeah. So there's there's a but. Uh, I am also going to say this, and I'm going to make a. We're really putting a push. Sean talked about this last week, and I'm going to end with this. We, our goal for the year is to get 1,000 followers on TikTok because that is going to open us broad wide. We are, we are, we have yet, since we started this whole campaign with reels and TikTok videos, and this has been going on now for two months, I, I can say without doubt that we have not gone a week yet where we haven't gained new followers from our reels and our and our TikToks and we want to welcome all of the new people who are listening who are joining in we thank you for helping us out and uh but we are we are pushing and I'm going to make a thing out there you know if you've got a TikTok account just make it a simple thing you know we don't we put out three videos a week is what we two to three videos a week is what we put out we're not going to clog your feed we're not going to do anything like that Follow us on TikTok um, at, uh, you see it uh, scrolling across the bottom there at VOR Podcast 2021 um, on TikTok. Please follow us. If you don't have TikTok, create a TikTok account, follow us, and then let it lie dormant. It's okay. Just as long as we have a thousand followers, we can stream live. But anyway, 
for Alex Ellison, Travis Kirkendall, and our, I'm not going to say vacationing, but our absentee friend, Sean Phillips, who we are, who, who we have good thoughts and, and hope for the, for him. Um, my name is Andy Van Beber. We will see you next week on the Voice of Reason podcast. Thanks for listening in. Thank you.